Luke chapter 22, verses 1 to 23, is our passage for this afternoon. With God's help, if you would give your attention to the reading of God's word from Luke chapter 22, beginning in verse 1. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. They said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters, And tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you, that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another which of them it could be who was going to do this. Let's pray. Holy God, Word made flesh, we thank you for revealing yourself to us. Jesus, we thank you for your condescension, that you made yourself known to sinners and to rebels who had rejected you as king. Christ, we thank you for bringing liberty to captives to those who were enslaved by their own sin. 
We come now praying as we prepare to open your word that you would do a work within our hearts, that you would unstop spiritual ears. God, that you would silence our own agendas, that you would shake us free from our tendency to remain casually detached from the preaching of your word. Instead, we ask that you would penetrate every corner of our hearts. God, we pray that uh, this word would be so impressed upon our hearts that we would learn to fear and to serve you alone. We know that you can, and we come believing that you will. In Jesus' name, amen. We come now today to the last meal Jesus would ever share with his disciples on the night of the Passover. That setting is critical to our understanding of this text. Luke will mention it six times throughout this passage that it is the Passover. The Passover was one of three annual feasts, three holy convocations to the Lord where every male was required to go up to the city of Jerusalem and in this case celebrate the Lord's deliverance of his people out of captivity and bondage and slavery uh, to the hand of Egypt. You remember how the Lord told his people to take a lamb, a lamb without spot or blemish, one for every house, which they were then to sacrifice. And as you heard in the reading of of the the public reading this, this afternoon, they were to sacrifice it and spread the blood on the two doorposts and over the lentils of their homes. That evening they would roast the flesh They would eat it together with unleavened bread and the bitter herbs, all while they had their belts fastened and their sandals would be on their feet and their staves would be in their hands and they were to eat it in haste to make ready for their departure. God says in Exodus chapter uh, chapter 12 and verse uh, 7, the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. It's it's against this backdrop, uh, while the nation of Israel, hundreds of years later, are gathering together to commemorate this time when God mercifully passed over Israel's firstborn. Uh, You remember that, that last and severest of the 10 plagues that swept over the land of Egypt, we we now find God's only begotten son, the firstborn of all creation, who will not be passed over. We find him preparing to be stricken, smitten, and afflicted by God, the Lamb of God offered up in the place of guilty sinners. Now, how is this going to come to pass? In one respect, we can look at things from the human plane, and we see that outlined for us in verse 2, where the chief priests and the scribes are seeking how they might put him to death. Uh, These are the, the, the same men, the very same men, who time and again have been unable to discredit the Lord Jesus publicly 
They have sure tried, haven't they? We've seen that throughout our whole survey of the gospel according to Luke. They have tried to discredit him. They've laid charges against him, charges of breaking the law. Um, None of them, they've been able to get to stick to him. They've suggested that, that he does miracles by the hand of Satan. And not by the power of God, they've tried to trick him and to to get him to stumble all to to no avail, but they haven't given up. They're, they're, They're still on the same mission, hardened in their hearts as they were, loving their status and their station more than they did the God that they supposedly served, fearing the loss of their clout, And their position, more than they feared the Lord, they press on. They press on in these schemes, but they've got this problem of the crowds. They've got this problem of those who are going out to see Jesus. Many are listening to him. It says they feared the people in verse 2. The implication there being that they can't be as brazen anymore. The way that they had been just in front of the disciples and the followers who were listening to them, they have to think in more underhanded terms. And so while the people of God stream into Jerusalem to celebrate this Passover, you have religious leaders spending their time plotting how they can kill the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The very ones who should have led the way in in receiving the promised Messiah into the world, they turn out to be the masterminds of his crucifixion. And these are men who have descended, many of them from the line of Aaron, the chief priests, that you have interpreters of the law present here, men who have spent their whole lives devoted to the study of the scriptures, What does that teach us? Brothers and sisters, first let us be warned once again of not tying the outward forms of religion or a rich family heritage of faith or even strict observance of of the law with an intimate knowledge of the Lord or a love for him. Let us never begin to imagine in our hearts that being religious is, in itself, a sure sign of a saving knowledge of the Lord. Look at these men. Look at these men and be warned away from the deception of thinking that if we have these certain features present in our lives, proximity to Christ, proximity to the things of God, We're associated with the church. We attend Lord's Day worship. We're people who pray. We give offerings. Uh, We have knowledge of the scripture that heaven has a place for us. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. If those things aren't present in our lives, surely we have cause for concern. But if that's where your confidence is, and not in a living relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, one that understands him to be all of your hope, all of your trust, the only surety that you have with the Father. Understand that you can be religious in all of these ways and be just as lost as the reprobate sitting on the bar or on the street corner. 
You can come to church every week of the year, dressed in your Sunday best, and still be utterly lost. Because it isn't religion that saves in terms of those external forms. It isn't by presenting oblations, offerings, or by by drawing near with our lips, by saying certain things, certain forms of prayer, or by kneeling down outwardly. It's by kneeling down inwardly. It's by prostrating ourselves in the heart by submitting ourselves in humility before the Lord, by bowing down in faith to Christ, drawing near to him in the inward parts by which man is saved. We have before us here this passage that holds forth Judas Iscariot, a man that few could rival in terms of proximity to Christ. A man that few could rival in terms of a certain kind of knowledge of Jesus' ways, and yet he proves himself to be traitorous in the end. And here's the the thing. One of the most striking things about this is the the other 11 never suspected it. They never suspected it. There's not a hint or a whiff Anywhere along the way that that a single one of the disciples ever suspected that something might have been up with Judas. He had the cloak of religion. And he wore it well. He wore it well. No one would have questioned that he had the appearance of godliness. But he denied its power. You have the danger of false religion. False piety. Spiritual hypocrisy, the idea that by mere association with the Christian religion, we can be reconciled to God. Beloved, only faith in the shed blood of Jesus Christ can make a man right with God. Only faith, simple faith in Christ. Second, give those who hold office in the church the honor that they're due. Esteem them very highly in the Lord is what the scripture says, but don't elevate them to a place that would lift them up beyond what the Lord would have you to do. How many times have you seen someone, or maybe this has been you yourself, who have professed faith in Christ, but because of the failure of some pastor or or church leader out there, their faith plummets. They become so disillusioned with the church that they perhaps even disassociate themselves with the church and with the Lord altogether. As it pertains to leaders in the church, love them, respect them, respect those who labor among you, who are over you in the Lord, but don't idolize them. Don't make men the object of your trust or look to those who while they are called to exemplify the Christian life, should never be so lifted up that their faith becomes determinative for your own. Whether or not you look to Christ, the best men are but men. And there have been horrible failures and wolves and traitors since the very beginning. And there will continue to be 
it is ours to cling to Christ. It is ours to hold fast to him. Now, returning to our text, these men sought how to put Jesus to death. But we see here also that there was more than human scheming going on. Verse 3, then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. I was thinking through the apostles' names today, thinking also of men and young men who are in our congregation. We have Johns and Andrews and Phillips and Matthews, but there is no Judas by name among us. Judas, though it was a very common name in the first century, is a name that has gone down in infamy. Judas Iscariot was one of the 12. He was one of those inner circle members. And we ask ourselves, how can this be? How can it be that a man who had been so close to Jesus, who had walked with him for such an intimate, long period of time, could so egregiously defect? He had heard Jesus teach so powerfully uh, with such magnificent authority, confounding the religious leaders. More importantly, he had heard Jesus proclaim the gospel of salvation, the power of God unto salvation. This is a man who had seen Jesus perform many mighty miracles, the feeding of the 5,000, the casting out of demons, the stilling of the storm. We could go on and on, the raising of the dead to life. And yet we must face it again. It isn't by listening to good preaching that a man is saved, not even by listening to the preaching of Jesus Christ himself. Is that surprising? It isn't by listening to good preaching that a man is saved. It isn't by going on missions trips that a man is saved or by doing good works or by rubbing shoulders with other blessed saints, or even by prophesying or casting out demons in the name of Jesus Christ, but faith alone, in Christ alone. And that is something that Judas Iscariot never knew. He never knew simple faith in Jesus Christ. He enjoyed a place of amazing, amazing privilege, temporally speaking, but his heart was never, never with Christ. Never with Christ. Never submitted to him. Trusting in him. And so you have the, these three strands of wickedness coming together in Judas. There's the form of godliness. This external form that, that makes a man like him right at home within the, the, the Christian faith. You have the power of the devil. And then thirdly, we see the lust of the flesh. Judas confers with the chief priests, the officers, about how to betray Jesus to them. And it says they were glad and agreed to give him money. So not only was the devil himself involved, but you also see the love of money, something that Jesus has repeatedly warned his disciples about, has he not? Take care and be on guard against all covetousness. 
for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Judas had not taken care. He wasn't on guard. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Judas had paid no heed. In John's gospel, he tells us that when Mary took that that bottle of expensive ointment and anointed Jesus' feet and brushed his feet with her hair, that Judas Iscariot was there and he was watching all of this going on. He said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? And then you have this. He said this, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. You see, brothers and sisters, the love of money already had a grip on his heart way back then. And you see the deception of sin. You see this progression of sin in Judas's life and how that warns us against the idea that we can toy with sin in, a, in, in this way so as to tolerate its presence in our lives. We, 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 we deceive ourselves into thinking, well, I can, I can just maintain its presence in my life at a certain level without it bringing me to ruin. Don't deceive yourself in in that way of thinking. There was this resident lust of the flesh within the heart of Judas Iscariot that he had never repented of. He had never sought Christ over. And so when the opportunity came, the ruling desire of his heart came into operation. Judas received his 30 pieces of silver in exchange for his help. Are you taking care? Are you on your guard? Now, in the meantime, notice the contrast in this text. While while all of this is going on and you have one of Jesus' disciples in the process of this defection and the religious leaders doing what they are, what is Jesus doing? And know that he is fully aware of what is going on. What do we find the Lord Jesus doing? He continues to walk in devotion to the Lord. He continues to walk in obedience to the will of God. He calls Peter and John to himself, and then he, he, he sends them off saying, go and prepare the Passover that we may eat of it. Jesus takes initiative, putting plans into place that will ultimately bring about his betrayal, his passion, his crucifixion. He tells them to go into this city where you'll find this man carrying a jar of water that will meet them and they're to follow him into this house and say to the master, the teacher says to you, where's the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? They were going to find this large upper room already prepared, already furnished, where they could prepare the meal, this meal that would be full uh, both of rich fellowship with Christ and horrific apostasy at the same time. Now three, three things I want to call your attention to as Jesus shares this meal with his disciples. First, what he longs for. What he longs for. Verse 15, he says to them, 
I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Brothers and sisters, Jesus takes pleasure, delight, and joy in fellowshipping with his people. I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you. John 13 and verse 1 says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He loved them to the end. We come to this moment on the precipice of Jesus' death, and Jesus has not dreaded this moment. He has earnestly desired it. Earnestly desired to fellowship with his people. This is Thursday, the day before his death. He has the agony of the cross ahead of him. He has the shame of being hung between two criminals still to come, stripped of all of his clothes, nails driven through his hands and his feet. This this crown of thorns placed upon his brow, this inscription uh, nailed across over his head intended to mock him. Jesus, the king of the Jews, a spear still to pierce his side. All of this in just a few hours' time, and yet he is fully present with his disciples, still earnestly desiring to be with them. Before I suffer, he says. You see, he's he's under no misapprehensions about what is to come. He's under no delusions. Jesus knows what is to come. I earnestly desire to fellowship with you before I suffer. Before I suffer, let me describe to you my earnest desire to eat this Passover with you. It's a a statement of very deep longing. A more literal rendering rendering would say, maybe you, you have this if you're reading from the King James, with desire, I have desired. It's an emphatic expression. Well, brothers and sisters, Jesus still desires fellowship with his own. With desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you. Hear those words, with you. What lovely words those are. Spurgeon says here, now note that on the night before his passion, our Lord led his, step, his friends a step beyond ordinary friendship. The mere follower does not sit at table with his leader. The disciple does not claim to be a fellow commoner with his master. The servant is seldom entertained at the same table with his Lord. The befriended one is not always invited to be a guest. But there the Lord Jesus made his chosen ones to be his table companions. He lifted them up to sit with him at the same table, to eat of the same bread and drink of the same cup with himself. And as I said, this reality and this this desire of the Lord's is something that has bearing not just on those early disciples, but on all who call upon his name. Do you realize that? If you are Christ's own, he delights in fellowship with you. 
Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 16, talking about the ordinance of communion that we will go on to share in today. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? The word participation there is koinonia. That's where we get the word fellowship. Writing to the Corinthians here, this is after the ascension of Christ. Paul speaks of the spiritual communion that we have with the Lord Jesus at the table. The fellowship that we share. But you see the implication here. The fellowship that Jesus earnestly desired to share with those early disciples was unique only in the sense that he was bodily present with them. This ordinance proclaims the same glorious truth that we have a share in what Christ provided for through his sacrificial death. We are participants in his body and his blood. We fellowship with him as we partake what Christ desires. Lesson number two, what the meal anticipates. Twice Jesus says, for I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Again in verse 18, for I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Jesus tells his disciples that what he is going to refrain from, that he will not eat it again until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. This is amazing because it tells us that in the Lord's Supper here, not only do you have fulfillment, but you also have foreshadowing. On the one hand, you have the true and better Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, a Lamb without spot or blemish. And in the same way that that Passover lamb had done nothing whatsoever to deserve its death and was offered up as a substitute. So also Jesus came to offer up the once for all sacrifice which could truly take away sin. We have been ransomed, God's word says, with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. In the same way that Moses took the blood of of the, of the sacrifice and sprinkled half of it on the people and then he took the other half and he sprinkled it on the altar propitiating the wrath of God. The Lord's Supper reminds us that the blood of Christ is applied to our own accounts. Not by physical means, but to our hearts by faith. Satisfying the wrath of God. Washing us whiter than snow. The Lord Jesus, we remember, washes us. He is our Passover lamb. The Lord's Supper is the fulfillment of the Passover, but there is also this forward-looking aspect to the meal. It looks back to the Exodus, but it also looks forward. What does it look forward to, beloved? It looks forward to the wedding supper of the lamb. 
Jesus says, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Now, one thing is, is wonderful to note here. It's not stated, but what, is, what does this imply? I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. The mind of Christ is so orientated around the goodness and the faithfulness of God that he can look with eager expectation at all that eternity holds before he's ever made it to the cross. He knows, in other words, that he will be vindicated. He will be lifted up to die, but he will be raised again on the third day. This meal that we celebrate today is not an end. It's not an end in itself. There's something still to be fulfilled. Jesus commands his disciples to proclaim his death, not indefinitely, but until he comes. Until he comes again, which points to that time when the totality of his salvation will be seen in perfect completion. The new heavens and the new earth will be gloriously consummated and Christ will drink the fruit of the vine with us again. So this is an act of anticipation every time we come together. Revelation chapter 19 describes uh, what this will be like when it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Revelation chapter 19 verses 6 to 9. John says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her, to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. We will join him in the marriage supper of the Lamb. Hallelujah. Every tear will be wiped away. There will be rejoicing and feasting and celebration. And this meal is but the most infinitesimal of foretastes of that glorious day. And so we cry, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. We're not done yet. Thirdly, what it signifies. Verse 19 And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now, just pause there for a moment. Before we look at the symbolism that is present in this meal, I have to call your attention to the disposition of Christ's heart. Once again, we have seen him taking the initiative to... to to institute this Lord's Supper, which means walking in obedience to the point of death, even death on a cross. We've seen the joy 
that he shares in fellowship with his followers. And now, as the hour of his death approaches, the darkest hour in the whole history of the world, what is Jesus doing? He is praising God. He is giving thanks to the Father. His heart overflows with gratitude to the, to the Lord. Something to meditate on. Something to meditate on in your trials and afflictions. Now, on to what it signifies. As Jesus distributes this bread and the cup, he takes these elements that had been prescribed for the Passover meal and he reappropriates them. He assigns them new meaning, new significance. First, he says of the bread, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The bread symbolizes his body. He speaks of it in representative, metaphorical terms. There's no suggestion here that the bread changes substances or literally becomes the body of Christ. As he uttered those words, the disciples would have seen Jesus there in the flesh with his own body. They would have understood very clearly what he meant. Uh, there's actually a parallel here with the Passover feast where the, the Israelites were told to eat unleavened bread, the bread of affliction, since they came out of Egypt in haste. Now, no one would have actually thought as they rehearsed that, that they were in, somehow, in some way eating the, the very same bread that the Israelites had eaten the bread of affliction as they came out of the wilderness. And the same principles present here, the same idea. The bread is representative of Christ's body given for you. Again, for you. Hear those words in personal terms today. Bound up in the bread is not just a picture of the body of Christ, but an emblem of his love. This is my body given for you. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. All of this he did for you. The emphasis here is on a substitutionary, vicarious act. For whom did Christ die? All that believe on him. All that the Father has given to the Son. Jesus said, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. Now, have you looked on the Son? Have you believed in him? Is this your confidence? That's what we come together to remember today. What Christ has done for us. 
Part of, part of the reason the Passover was instituted was so that the, the Israelites would have an opportunity every single time that they celebrated it to locate themselves in their observation of the feast. In, in Deuteronomy chapter 26, Moses gives them instructions on what exactly they should recite during that Seder meal. It says, and you shall make a response before Yahweh your God. A wandering Aramean was my father, and he went down into Egypt and sojourned there, few in number, and there he became a nation great, mighty, and populous. And the Egyptians treated us harshly and humiliated us and laid on us hard labor. Then we cried to Yahweh, the God of our fathers, and Yahweh heard our voice and saw our affliction, our toil, and our oppression. And Yahweh brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, with great deeds of terror, with signs and wonders. And he brought us into this place and gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Now, generations of Jews would recite those words and as they did, they were locating themselves in the story of redemption. They didn't live when those events happened, but by faith, they were personalizing and appropriating to their own account what had been promised to their forebears. Well, in a similar way, in our observation of the Lord's Supper, we find our place in a second exodus, in Christ's redemptive work. Every week as we eat the bread and we drink the cup, we are retelling our story, what God in Christ has done for us. We call to mind this fact that by faith, we're participants in a new covenant wrought in the blood of Jesus Christ, this true and better lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And that brings us to the cup. Likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And when you, when you read your Bible and you, you see this image of a cup being poured out, uh, that, that's a picture almost always of a violent death. Christ shed his blood to establish a new covenant, an eternal covenant. The language here comes from Jeremiah chapter 31, where God promises to cut this new covenant uh, with his people, not like the covenant that he made with, his father, with their fathers at Mount Sinai, a covenant that they broke. You see, the fault was on Israel's side. It wasn't with the Lord. Is with the people. They were the ones who failed. We needed a new covenant. We needed a covenant that didn't depend on our faithfulness or on our obedience, but that of another. We have that. We have that in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the reason we needed a God-man to come and to deliver us. Our passage closes with this, really what 
you might describe as a final word of warning. Jesus says in verse 21, but behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. There are many lessons that we could draw from those couple of verses, but I want to just very briefly highlight three. First, Jesus portrays his death as something that takes place within the purposes of God and the counsel of his will. He says, the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. So beloved, when you see all that we have seen, when you see Jesus' accusers conspiring to put him to death, when you see this kangaroo court and principles of justice being disregarded, know that nothing has gone off the rails. Nothing has gotten out of hand. God is bringing his purposes to pass. And at the same time, there is a woe that is pronounced against Christ's betrayer. Woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. So you see how the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man are both upheld. Neither is diminished. Neither one is denied. Neither is emphasized to the exclusion of the other. Both are upheld. The sovereignty of God, his good and gracious purposes being accomplished, and the responsibility of man. This is the the same truth that the apostles would later go on to proclaim. Acts 2 and verse 23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Second, let me press the point just once more. Even the first Lord's Supper was a mixed bag. Now, why is this important? Again, many things we could say here, but just one. We must rid ourselves of this idea that if we could just get back to the early church, then everything would be well. We have a a New Testament that is filled with epistles to churches that all have their problems and challenges, don't they? Our confession of faith makes the same point uh, where it says, even the purest churches under heaven are subject to mixture and error. This was true in Jesus' day. It remains true in ours. The, The Bible says that the wheat and the tares will always be found growing together. Until Christ comes, you will always find them growing together. So our hope is not in getting back to some imaginary, pure state, but in keeping our eyes on Jesus. Fixing our eyes as individuals, as a people, as a church, on the Lord and on his word. Third, and Again, to cycle back to what we saw at the beginning, it is 
possible to be very close to Christ and to his people and yet not have a share with him. Notice how the disciples respond when Jesus reveals what he does about his betrayer. They began to question one another which of them it could be who was going to do this. And we know from Mark's account that at least some of them became sorrowful when they heard this and began to say, is it I? And yet we look at Luke's account here and and there seems to be an indication that perhaps there were others who weren't so much looking inwardly but were rather speculating about others, whispering about who they suspected it might be, rather than considering their own loyalties and attachments, they wondered who might the betrayer be. That temptation is present with us today, to be thinking about others and not ourselves. Brothers and sisters, let us consider our own accounts and not another's. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. So let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you for the gospel. We love you for what you have done in Christ. God, we give you glory and honor for the life, death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. God, we praise you for his saving power. We praise you, Lord, that everyone who calls on his name shall be saved. God, we give you glory for his keeping power, that it's not up to us to preserve ourselves, but that he who began a good work in us will be faithful to complete it to the day of Christ Jesus. Thank you for this good news. God, I pray that we would be those who are full of grateful hearts Lord, that the good news of the gospel would spill out of our mouths with exuberance and joy and thanksgiving. Lord, that the name of your Son would be magnified in our church. Lord, if there be mixture among us, would you bring it to the surface? Would you reveal that? Thank you for the hope that comes with simple repentance and faith. Lord, I pray that we would all be found in right standing with you through the blood of Christ. I pray that we would be ready for our master's return. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.